My name is Dan Smith, and this is who I am. My guest today is illustrator and game designer, Dan Smith. All right. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks for joining me in the garage. Um, so you are an all-round creator. You do a lot of stuff. You do comic books. You do games. Um, you are involved in um, uh, role-playing games in manuals and the artwork in manuals. Is that correct? That's that is true. Um, I find that... When I do meet people who are creative, there are various levels of creativity. There are those who are specific. They have something they really love to do, and they focus on that. And then there are the people who are like me, who can't stop. And whatever kind of medium is in front of them, they take advantage of it and create with it. So... When did you start creating? When did you feel the urge to create anything? Can you remember? Were you a kid that would make your own books or draw constantly? Or did you consume a lot of um, media and then it became a moment where it spilled over and you, you thought to yourself, I can do this? Well, as a kid, being as a kid without the internet, um, the input that you would get was very focused. It was very uh, reduced. So what was on television, there were five shows or six shows on it during one hour, and you had to choose. Um, there were only, you know, five or six radio stations you would listen to. And uh, so the, uh, the input you'd get was restricted. But in that restriction the limitations that you were given made you expand. You didn't rely upon somebody else's version so much of what life was, of what was creative, um, because there wasn't that much there. And so you'd fill in the blanks. I notice nowadays when um, my son and people of his age are interested in something, it's usually dictated into very tight, niche concepts, um, musically, artistically, story-wise, um, that they feel no need to expound upon it because they've already gotten down to the microscopic mode they wanted. When someone hands you a piece of bread, and they say, make a sandwich, you go, wow, I've got the world of sandwiches to make. In this day and age, people give you a grilled cheese sandwich and say, make a sandwich. Well, your sandwich is now based upon grilled cheese. And the deviation from that will not be that far off from grilled cheese. So when I was a kid, there were two comic book companies. And um, I started off being a big fan of one. And then because I was full of that one, I became a fan of the other. First Marvel, then DC. Um, and because of all that, uh, because of the quality of people's work there, um, as a child, 
what I did was I would take tracing paper and I would trace the artwork, uh, specifically Gil Kane's Captain Marvel, number 17, number 18. <laughs> Those were the two that made me feel that I wanted, I wanted to own this. And a true, a true value of art in any form is when a person wants to own it. And I wanted to own it personally, not just by owning the comic book, but I wanted that to be me. So I would trace it, and I would trace it, and I would get National Lampoons with Russ Heath's art in there. And it's very adult stuff, and I'm like 10, you know. Um, and I would trace it. I would learn from that. And um, after a while, I stopped tracing, and I started drawing very poorly. But at least I had the memory of what good art was going through my arm to my hand. And through that, I started to progress. Um, Story-wise, it took longer for me to learn the concepts of storytelling. Um, for games, um, being a game player from about 16, and I'm saying role-playing games, not board games, because there's only so far in board games back in those days you'd go with. They were, you know, you were Risk, you were uh, Monopoly, Stratego, and that was about it. So, but when I was about 15, 16, which was back in the mid to late 70s, TSR came out with Dungeons & Dragons and got to be into doing that, and that's where storytelling became a part of my uh, bag of tricks. And I learned what makes a good story from that. And then a lot of people in the industry now, and in all industries now, started that way, which I find gratifying, like I was on the right track. <laughs> um, and one day, later on, when I was married, well, before I was married, actually, um, my then-girlfriend, my wife now, uh, she asked me, why don't you draw for these companies that you do these games for? And I didn't have an answer to that. And so I um, submitted my stuff, got rejected, submitted again, got approved, and uh, did about six years in the 90s where I was basically everywhere. And a lot of people on chat boards 10 years later just would tear me apart. Like, I, I love the game system. I hated his art, <laughs> you know. And then when the next edition of that particular game came out and there's something else, some other kind of art was on there, usually it was using Poser or it was clip art from public domain from 1872 to illustrate the use of gunpowder, you know, um, they finally came back around and said, you know what, his artwork wasn't that bad. <laughs> I actually appreciate an actual artist on there as opposed to, you know, public domain work. Um, but in doing the, the artwork for other game companies, I saw what they were doing. And I, having slightly different viewpoints, as everybody does, I thought I could do, not better, but I could do different. So I started working on a game a card game where you start your own rock band. And um, I'd been working on Illuminati New World Order for Steve Jackson Games, and 
uh, Vampire the Eternal Struggle, which ended up, uh, which was before Jihad. I was doing card games where when people played against each other, someone would, would, would win. And it was usually because of the destruction of their opponent. And I thought, wow, that's a real harsh way to win. I would like to have a game where if you won, it wasn't to the absolute destruction of your opponent, but you know, you've beat them, but everybody had a good time. And, and if somebody won, that was okay. But as long as you enjoyed the game, that was what the important thing was. And so I thought starting your own rock band, a very strange rock band, would be a lot of fun. And that was how Battle of Bands was born. And um, I was driving home one day from my job at a computer game company as one of the artists there. And I was listening to radio, and I re- realized that that was what I wanted to do, was just do a game you know, because everybody wants to be a rock star. Everybody wants to start their own band. And I drove home, kissed my wife as I walked through the door, sat down at the computer, and two hours later, the game was about 70% done. I was that sure of what I, you know, what I wanted to do. Hmm. And that's an important thing also to remember is that as a creative, always do what you know. And I, I knew music, a uh, huge record collection. I've been in bands, uh, written songs, um, you know, I'm really aware of, of the trivial aspects of, of music history and all that. So I went into it knowing my, you know, knowing my genre that I was working in. Um, as a creative, you should always, always work on what you know. After about being 70% done with Battle of the Bands, uh, it took about a year of playtesting. And I playtested with my uh, friends and co-workers at the game company I worked at. Every day during lunch, we sat down and made notes and played, made notes and played. And after about a year, it was finished. And it's now in its 16th year, and it's um, it has a certain fan following to it. Um, I have yet to have somebody play the game and tell me they didn't like it. <laughs> I did read in a review once where someone said they didn't like it because it wasn't Magic the Gathering. And I thought, he's absolutely right. It's not Magic the, it's not Magic the Gathering. <laughs> you know? So... Um, Everybody brings, you know, to the table their filters, and that was his. Mm. Um, and so as a, that's how I got into gaming, and that's how my love of gaming has shaped me to doing that. Um, when it came to comics, I've been a comic fan forever, and I've always, as a child, would draw three- and four-page comics or one-page comics, or I'd sit down and start a comic and, and never finish it. But I was doing it from the viewpoint that you would take a piece of 8.5 by 11 bond paper with a pencil and a ruler, and you'd draw your comics. You know, I had no concept of what uh, the professional comic industry dictated or worked at. Um, until I met uh, three people... Well, I met four people, but three of them became instrumental in, in my comic uh, creator moments. Um, I went to a thing called the Comic Artist Group, which was based out of the East Coast, and they had some they had a West Coast chapter out here. And it just so happened that they were having a meeting up not too far from where I lived, and my wife said, you should go. You should get out of the house. Leave me alone. Go out and be with your people. And I thought, well, that's a fair assessment. So I went up there, and I sat down, and there were four people there. There was Carl Altstetter. I met 
Jesse Mesa Tovis. And the other person was Jeremy Burley. Those three were the, they were the, the instruments of my ascension. But they were the, the catalyst that helped me get out and do some projects. Um, one project, I was able to do two issues of a four-issue series. And I stopped that because I got a gig doing a comic book where I did seven issues of that series. And uh, all creator owned by me, but funded by somebody else, which is, it's a sweet gig if you can get it. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, but I've done what it takes to do a comic book, and it, not just the drawing, but the inking and the coloring and the lettering and the writing and the producing and anything and everything that has to do with my comics I did. So I've done all that you can do in a comic and I know what it takes and it's hard, but it is satisfying, especially if you do it for you. Um, you'll always do your best work for you. And if you can find any project you're working on, even if it's not yours, if you can find some way of gaining ownership in your mind of what you're doing and do your best work that way, it will always be beneficial to you uh, emotionally. And when someone asks you, did you do that piece of work? You'll say, you're damn right I did it. And I'm proud I did it. What do you think changed between when you first submitted and, and the second submission when you were accepted? Well, what oh, did you work um, on during the that first period? submission I did was for Steve Jackson Games. Okay. And um, uh, I think what I did was a little cartoony. Mm -hmm. And um, at that time, the art director was Steve, the owner of the company, and it, uh, everything goes through him first before he allows an art director to take over. Um, his name's on the company. I <laughs> absolutely understand that. Um, it was a little cartoony to begin with, and my line work was a little thin, and, you know, um, my love for gaming did not translate as well into my, my level of art expertise for the first submission. But the second submission was only about a month later. It was, you know... Um, I think they may have asked, well, show us something else. Mm -hmm. So I sat down, and, and I was sending um, illustration board through the mail. This is before computers. This is before sending files and things like that. So I, And I would, didn't know about Bristol board. I, didn't, I knew about illustration board, which is very thick. It's something you could actually paint on and have a stability to. So when you send it in the mail, it was poundage. Um, <laughs> but... Um, I remember that second, the second submission, they said, that's great, we'd like to have you do 10 or 20 pieces for this particular book, which was GURPS Ultratech. And um, I did those. And then I remember getting that first comp copy. I went to my local game store and stood in front of the owner and said, look what I did. And he was like, yeah? <laughs> and I thought, well, screw you. <laughs> because, you know, 20 years from now, someone's going to have this book in their house, and they're not going to know who the hell you are, so shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that was a, a a really neat moment, you know. Also a sobering moment that, you know, your level of of uh, wait till the end. 
<laughs> I'm sorry, but you know, working on a movie, <laughs> you, you get mindful of the background noise. Um, your level of, of, you know, what makes you happy doesn't necessarily translate to anybody else. Hmm. And once again, making yourself happy in whatever you do really is the most important thing. Um, so that's um, so when you were up with Jesse, Carl, and um, and Jeremy, you you hadn't made a, a or you hadn't worked on a comic book up until then, except for these the the, the ones that you'd done when you were younger, right? Um, but you were in this position where you had lots of story ideas, and and that was a way you wanted to communicate them. Or were you thinking of other ways, and this just happened to tap into something that you knew that you enjoyed and and channeled you that way? Would you say or what was interesting was that at that moment, or at that time, CAG was putting out anthologies. Comic book anthologies where their constituents would submit a story idea. And if it was passed for that particular anthology, then they would pair the writer with an artist, and they would create a 12-page or an 8-page story that would go within the anthology. And they were just happening to have an anthology of public domain stories. Hmm. And so across the United States, all the different chapters of CAG were all submitting stories. And what was funny was that out of the eight stories that were going to fit inside that magazine, four of them were ours. Hmm. Jeremy's story passed. Carl's stories passed. Um, Jesse's story passed, and my story passed. <laughs> okay, out of out of the United States for this one issue, we four jumped in, and um, there were many factors in that. I think one of them being that maybe the age that we were. Um, mm-hmm. I'm probably the oldest of the group. I think um, Jesse is the second, and then Carl, then Jeremy. But but we were all fairly seasoned people in the world. We mm-hmm. didn't just come out of our embryo and said, let's just do this. So I think we, we had a, an insight on what stories we wanted to say. I think we, we treated the subject matter of public domain characters. Mine was based on King Arthur. Mm-hmm. Um, I think also that us living in Los Angeles, um, which happens to be an uh, industry-driven town, so... Everyone, if everyone doesn't have a screenplay in their back pocket, they've got one in their head. So um, that's also, I think, upped our level of competence in, in being chosen. Um, but we were all <laughs> a tight group, and the fact that we were all you know, okayed for that. And then I saw some of the earlier anthologies they put out, mm-hmm. and I was horrified. <laughs> horrified. The stories were elementary school level. They were all horror mm-hmm. anthologies. And so what I got a sense of was that the writers didn't know horror. They knew slasher film concepts. So for them, as long as there was a sharp knife and there was a bunch of blood spurting, it was good to go. And the level of art that was on there was not up to the level of the four of us sitting there. And even though that, you know, some of us had not even put out comics, 
our art styles were strong enough, you know, that, you know, we could work through a story, a basic story, and still make it work visually, you know, and be uh, pleasing to the eye. What I saw there was horrifying. And I was like, do I want to be a part of a group that's putting out this level of content when I know that I know that the level I'm going to put out is going to surpass, surpass that by a wide margin. And when we had submitted our scripts and got back heavy-handed corrections on there, we all jumped ship. Mm. <laughs> because we realized that the captain of this particular vessel... Um, hadn't been doing it for very long and wasn't very good, but the ego was there. Mm-hmm. And seeing what they had done previously, seeing what they had done to our stuff, and knowing what our stuff was doing, we realized that we were putting our pearls into the hands of swine. And I don't mean them as that they were bad people or pigs or anything like that, but, but just using that, that phrase and turning it that way. We were putting good work into the hands of people who would not know how to deal with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think CAG is a good thing in the fact that it does bring people together. Um, I don't know if their mentoring system is at a level that um, isn't as where it could be. Um, but us for leaving CAG and starting our own group, um, you know, we speak to people who would come to us in a mentoring way. And we, having been through people who've judged us unrightly, when someone comes to you at a convention and looks at your comic book and says, oh, I could do better than that, you know, as opposed to most people's first inclination is to, you know, raise a fist and count how many teeth are on the table after they get done. Um, ask them, well, I'd like to see your comic. If they go, well, I don't have one. They go, well, it's very easy for you to judge mine. When you have a comic book, please bring it by. I'd love to rip it apart as well as you're ripping mine apart. You know, um, having people who are not qualified to judge what you're doing, um, we have taken that and turned it around so that when we see people who are at certain levels, we know they're at those levels. Doesn't mean that's where they're going to stop. Doesn't mean that's where they want to go any further, you know? It ultimately comes down to what are they gaining from whatever they're doing, you know? If they're not happy, then we will help them try to find ways to make them happy. Put them, that round peg they are, out of that square hole and into a more rounded, if not round hole, you know, Mm -hmm. make it work for them. Um, If they want to go and become somebody big in in the industry, whether it be comic books, gaming, uh, you know, video games, you know, wherever they want to go, storyboard art. If we can't help them get someplace or get to get better where they're at, we know somebody who can, and we'll hook them up because knowledge is not to be kept. Knowledge is a public entity, and we all learn knowledge at different levels and at different times. You know, that someone doesn't know one thing and you know it does not mean they are lesser than you because they haven't hit that point yet. And it's your position to, this is your moment to give them that point, to give them where they got to go. And then once they get there, 
you know, they can go further. Um, because you never know who you're with. You know, you could be sitting right in front of Alan Moore at his, you know, his beginning stages, you know, and treat him, you know, horribly because for some reason it makes you feel good that moment. And then down the road he becomes Alan Moore. And then when you look at him, you go, oh, God, what have I done? <laughs> Why did I just stick, you know, that, that knife into my own throat? When it, when it would take it been so easy to have been just kind, mm-hmm. you know, and let him be his thing. Because creativity does not have a hierarchy, you know. There are thousands of artists out there who are at the top of their game. And you could not compare any one of them to the other for it be an unfair comparison. It would be apples to oranges to mint leaves to beefsteak to tennis shoes to, you know, whatever. You can't, you know, they all are great in their own, you know, in their own way. It's whether it speaks to you or not. So, hmm. so when, you know, in being out there with other creatives, kindness plays a huge role in keeping your flame alive. Uh, because as we all know, being creatives and artists, is that we're very fragile creatures. <laughs> we, we hate being stomped on. Mm. <laughs> we hate being told we're wrong. And do you think do you think the comics community is a small community? Do you think there's that, that element as well where, um, you know, like something you do or say gets around very quickly and and people start to, to see you a certain way because of that? Or Oh, absolutely. I think every industry is that way. I, th- I think that just life in general, um, I think that there are times and places to say what you feel. And if it's in a negative vein, that's human. It'd be nicer to say it in a more constructive way, but there are times when it's when constructiveness is not going to be happening here today. It's going to be all out war and, you know, get ready for it. But I think that the comic industry, you know, is not a small world. It's a huge world, especially since we now have access to, you know, print on demand. When I was 20, the idea of me going out and printing a comic book was not even within my wheelhouse. I mean, you'd never think to go to a printer and say, well, how much would it cost to print 5,000 copies or 20 copies? They couldn't print you 20 copies of your comic book. They'd have to print you 5,000. And 5,000, forget about it. You know, no one had $5,000 back in the 80s, you know, because <laughs> that was more like $20,000, you know, in, in this kind of money. So everybody who has access to having their stuff made professionally it's exponentially huge. So the, the comic world, the gaming world, the publishing world of anything is huge. And because of the accessibility of that, the level of artistic merit for the public is really low because there is no filter. There is no moment where you've gone to a point where you've gone to a person who is in business publishing something takes a look at what you're giving them as a concept to being published and they go dude you're not ready okay and they being in the position they are 
know what's out there, know what's expected, and know whether you are ready for that or not, whether you are at the cusp of being ready for that or whether you're like, you know, you know, three streets away from it and you need to keep on working. Um, now what it is, they go, oh, all I got to do is upload this work? Dude, I got comics. And if you're doing it for yourself and it makes you happy, brilliant. Life is good. You know, mom loves them. Your friends love them. Great. But if you're expecting the world to come back to you and say, hey, you know, you're the next, you know, uh, Mark Miller or, you know, uh, Mike Mignola, I'll use him again. Not going to happen. Unless, of course, you are, and I'm wrong. But that, you know, 0.001% of you, I apologize right now. Um, and so when you go to a convention and you see all the different levels of comics out there, and that's really what it is, all different levels. You know, they're the criteria of even being close to what is normally published through a, a big-name publisher, most people aren't even close. Do you think that's changing now? Because, um, like you've said before, you said before that there's, um, you know, if you're making something for yourself, that's good. And then the, the business has changed a lot in the last few years, and it feels like... Um, there's the quality of of what's being produced by people making it for themselves has gone up yes. quite a lot. There is, there is a paradigm shift, you know, with with the the coming in of of the lesser level of talent. There also is a coming in of of a talent that would never have seen the light of day because of subject matter, because of genre, because of artistic style, because of uh, their position of voice. Um, that all is coming through, and you are getting some wonderful stuff that um, is bright and new because of the accessibility, because the doors are wide open. You know, besides the chaff, you do get wheat. Mm. You get some really good Durham wheat. I mean, you get the, <laughs> you get the you get the, the good stuff too, and and so that also plays a part and what's going on in the world. And that's why the comic book industry is large and not a small one in that way. Where do you see yourself then? Where, so you, you said like there's this, there's the big two are still kind of locked into, I, I, for me, a lot of what they've done is they've kind of bricked themselves off. Mm. They've bricked off their community yes. and said, we're making books for this demographic and it's a shrinking demographic. And I'm, you know, I may be wrong, new readers may be coming in, but it always feels like they're pandering to a, a very specific and small group. Yes. Um, and then you have lots of uh, books being created and lots of stories being told across several different platforms and, uh, and media that are for everyone and they're kind of there for people to find. Um, do you see yourself as being someone who's creating for yourself still or are you creating because you want to move into a a, a certain area in, in a, like make it a career or make it something that is sustainable financially as well as emotionally or is it somewhere in between where do you see yourself as a creator oh I'm in the very same boat you are <laughs> <laughs> um, if you are not of the level of the big five or six, you know, Image and Dark Horse and, mm -hmm. and IDW and all those people. If you're not part of that, then, then 
your creating of anything needs to be solely for your own personal enjoyment. That's why you got into it in the beginning. That's why you write. That's why you sing. That's why you draw or ink or color or whatever part of whatever industry you want to be in. That's why you do it because if you don't love it, you're going to hate it. If you're doing web comics, if you're doing your own print comics, if you're doing games, you know, whatever you're doing, you do it because you love it. And because you love it, you'll keep doing it. I mean, you do it when no one's looking. You do it when you have a moment free during lunch. You do it when you're waiting on the phone. Whatever you're doing, I'm driving over here to do this. Uh, I've got a, three games in my head, and I'm working out all the different permutations of the different game possibilities of, let's say, certain cards or certain actions. And it doesn't stop. I mean, that's what a true creative is. They are forced to do that. And if they put in any other position where they can't do that, they become violent, they become depressed, um, they stop functioning as a positive force in society. You have to do this as a creative. And so you're doing it for yourself. Now that the money comes, ooh, isn't that great? You know, um, an example for me on this is that I'm an illustrator and I can work five, six, eight different styles, okay? Um, I'm also a card game designer and a board game designer. Um, I'm also a lyricist. I'm also a script writer, okay? Um, I'm not that great with clay, but give me some time on it. I can actually paint. I can sketch on a whim. I draw very fast. Um, for me to do a comic book page from pencil to final color, having text added all there, I can do like three pages a day, okay? And that blows people's minds. I mean, um, give me three blank pieces of paper, and by the end of the day, you can have three full done color pages. Um, but that takes a lot of hard work, but I love it. You know, I work on five or six games at a time, and, and sometimes it takes years for them to be finished, and sometimes it takes three weeks. Oh, my gosh, there it is. It's done. I mean... Thank you, God. Appreciate that. You know, just spit it out of me. Um, I had to make a business card. It took me five years to make a business card because I do so much stuff. I never thought that I would be in comics as a professional. I, as a child, I always wanted to be a comic book artist, but I never, ever thought that I would be uh, of a level that would be good enough for that. One... Because when I started really getting serious about doing drawings, um, I usually had choices. I could either stay home and draw, or I can go out dancing. Mm -hmm. I go, mm, let's go out dancing. So I go out dancing more than I would draw. And I had people in, in school, you know, friends of mine, they wouldn't go out dancing. They'd stay home and draw. And, th like, that guy went to filmation, like, right out of high school. Boom, he goes into an animation studios. And he's like, you know, one of their guys. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow. And I, I almost asked him, how'd you do it? And I thought, I know exactly how you did it, <laughs> you know. And as a person, his social skills were like that of a person who just sat down and drew all the time. Didn't know girls, didn't know how to deal with them, didn't know boys, didn't know how to deal with them, didn't know, you know, how to, didn't know anything other than what was on, in front of the drawing board on him. Mm -hmm. You know, he knew anatomy. He knew, uh, you know, how to draw and all that, but. 
he had the technical stuff, but he didn't have the soul of being able to put something interesting with that. He didn't have enough knowledge of how to make it different, of how to make it personal. I mean, he could just he could go through the motions, you know. And as a comic book artist, you know, sometimes that's all you need is just to do what you've been dictated to do. You know, you get the job done, and that's fine on the next one. You know, for me, I knew that my art style would never be any higher than, you know, uh, C+. There are times when I've gotten to Bs. I've had a few A moments, you know, but by no stretch of the imagination is my, you know, grade point average average for my illustration skills ever been higher than, I would say, probably a C plus in my estimation. I know I'm harsh on myself, but um, that's just where I feel. So I never saw myself being a part of, of the industry that way. I was happy just to be a fan and to do what I wanted to do for me. Um, now that we can do our own stuff, I had a taste of what it's like to do that, you know? And as a comic creator, going to shows, having a table, putting my heart and soul out there on a table for someone to walk by and, and you know, quickly dismiss as like, eh, rubbish, you know, because they can. Um, it hasn't deterred me from what I want to do. You know, I do that. You know, if, if I'm doing comics, because I love doing comic books, then I do them, I put my heart and soul into it, the best I can do at that moment, you know, because every issue I do is better than the last because I learned from that last issue, you know, what I didn't like. You know, what I could do. You know, maybe I could reframe that that particular panel so that I could draw what I draw best as opposed to attempting something that I couldn't draw as well. Mm. You know. Um, yeah, it feels like there's... Uh, I, I've said this before. I've said this in the past where because of that, the ability now to get stuff out so quickly and so uh, immediately... You know, it's you, you can draw a page and it can be seen by thousands of people that day. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put it somewhere and it can mm-hmm. be seen. And because of that, I think there's um, there's this kind of expectation from the the side of the reader or the, the consumer that it should be at this higher level. That there's there's no there's no sense of of that learning period anymore, that learning curve that exists with this. You know, the whole, um, the classic idea that you have to draw your 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 pictures before you get good kind of idea that used to permeate back when, when I was, you know, when I thought, oh, I could, I could be a comic book artist many years ago. Um, but that idea that you have to go through, you know, for writers as well, you have to, you have to put out, these bad stories to, to learn how to do them. You have to learn from what you're doing. And there is there is a lack of that now, it seems like. You know, there there you you can put something out that is rough, but there's still something good in there. And that can be better than something that is completely polished and completely formed that isn't good. That is vacant in in its material. Yes. um, I liken it to the coming of of MTV for music. Mm. And what I mean by that is back before that happened, um, you would have music scenes. 
what you do is you have a, a band or two bands or five bands in a certain region of a country or a city or something like that. And they're all, you know, together in a musical style, mm-hmm. you know. And they're doing something. Like, let's talk about the, the ska movement, um, the resurgence of ska in England in the uh, mid to late 70s. And you had the bands from Coventry, like uh, The Specials, and you'd have um, Madness, you'd have The Beat, known as the English Beat in, in America, you'd have The Selector, you know. You'd have a lot of little bands that were doing their thing, right? And they are all focusing on the, the Jamaican ska um, of the 60s as their, their, uh, their framework. And they all put out albums, and they started to gain a following, and they put out a few more albums, and, you know, their second albums were as good as their first albums, you know. Uh, third albums may not so good. But the thing is, is that they had a five-year period, you know, of being in the spotlight to having that scene being created, okay? But they had years before that honing their craft to get that point. So, you know, when they finally went out into the world, their first endeavor, you know, was, was their best at that moment, and it worked and it was good, and the world saw it. When MTV came around, like it is now with, with all the internet places you can go to, with all the television channels you have, they are starving for content. I mean, if you're not talking about the newest thing right now, okay, no one's going to watch you. You've got to find some way of making that, that uh, public eye see you, you know, for you to exist. And so MTV would go out, and they would hear the whisper of someone like, there's a guy here, and he's taking Campbell's soup cans, and he's starting to dink them, and then, boom, there's a camera on this guy going, hey, that Campbell's soup dude, check him out. Dink, 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 dink. Crazy, huh? Boom. And then the next week, boom, it's some other guy who's playing, uh, you know, chicken legs. You know, he's playing drumsticks with actual drumsticks. And look at that guy. And, and what could have been the whole chicken drumstick movement, you know, of 1997 <laughs> never happened because... Because they jumped it on him, they exposed him to the world. He wasn't ready for it. That one song he had was was a, a hit for three seconds. He made no money on it, and then he's always being limited at the one hit wonder who was doing the chicken leg thing, right? It's the same thing with comics, you know. It's the same thing with what is out there now. No one has a chance to sit down and bang their head against the wall till they finally get the right rhythm till they finally get the right sound, you know, the right sound with their pen, you know, whatever it may be, um, to get their thing realized, to finally show to the world, hey, this is it. This is the dude. It's Chicken Leg Man, and he's the dude. And you're like, oh, my gosh, look at that guy. He's awesome, you know. I want to see his next issue. I want to see his third issue, you know. Now some guy goes out there and he does a doodle of Chicken Leg Man. He goes, oh, wow, yeah, and done. And it never became Superman. It never became Batman. It never became Wolverine or Deadpool or whatever. It never had a chance to gestate long enough to become fully formed before released upon the world. We now, in our need to be seen without any buffers between us, without any limitations between us, we throw it out there, it's not ready, and it dies upon birth. And that it goes with story, art, music, video, whatever. Whatever you're putting out there, if you don't get a chance to just sit back and 
make it right. Carl Allstetter told me something, and I said, I agree with you, but I can't do that. And he said to me, he says, you need to draw your first comic. When you're finished with your first comic, you stick it in the drawer, and then you draw your first comic. <laughs> and that first comic goes out to the world. The one in the drawer was what you sat there, and you got everything wrong on that one, and no one sees it. Mm. But what you learned on that one, you put on the one that you're going to put out to the world. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the punk movement where you would... Right, you know, they would play a song once at a venue, and it would become people would talk about it. But right, no one, only twenty or thirty people would have ever heard it. Right, um, and I told Carl, I said, I can't justify me putting all that work into something and just stick it in a drawer. And he says, I understand that. I'm just telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, and I, and when I put that first comic book out, I went, oh, and my second comic book came out. And it was better. And I went, Jesus, this was my first. And he goes, see? I said, I know, <laughs> but I couldn't do that. And now, if you could follow that axiom, do that first one, and then put it aside, and then do your first one, you're going to be so much happier. <laughs> and you'll be so much better than everybody else out there who take the original first one and throw it out there and go, what? There it is. You know? Um, was... Blue Nights was that your first book that you? That was my that was my first published comic book. It was a um, sort of a police procedural in a fantasy world, and I thought I was being clever. I thought I was like, oh, no one's done this. And then I find out, you know, uh, it's a couple issues on that someone had put out a book called Dragon Precinct, you know, and there are other people doing stuff like that. And I and I always know that that you don't create in a bubble and even though you may never heard of whatever you're doing someone else has probably done it mm -hmm. um, that story was first actually no, the, my, my first published story wasn't uh, wasn't um, wasn't Blue Knights it was the samurai story mm -hmm. that was part of the samurai uh, book that we were a part of yeah the anthology book that yes. had work right. by yourself Jeremy Jesse yes, Carl Donna everybody yes. everybody in the <laughs> Los Angeles group yes um that was my first published story. Um, I I did all three chapters. Only one chapter ever got published, um, but that was the one I, I finished all the way through, you know. And I learned a lot about doing that, which came over into my first Blue Nights one. And even then, my Blue Nights one could have standed a a redoing again before it went out into the world. But I'm proud of it um, because a lot of people can't say they've done a comic book. And, that, and, and when you're doing comic books, that really is a, a, a benchmark as a creator. I mean, when you finally say, I've actually published my own book, you know, I've actually made sales on it, you know, but overall, I did what I wanted to do. I, I, I can say that I've created comic books. Now, whether they're worth anything to anybody else's mind doesn't matter to me. I, that's not my criteria. My criteria is that I did it. And so when somebody asks me any information on what it took to do that, I can tell them that. You know, it has nothing to do with quality of, of story or art like that, but it has to do with the actual process of creation. You know, um, everybody has their own way of, of getting there, but if you can get there and come back and have a physical representation of that, that's huge. Mm -hmm. That is really huge, you know. Um, and as a creator, 
You know, there's there's more than one ways to skin a cat. You know, there's more than one ways of, of getting your story out. I mean, I can take, you know, I can take my comic book and I can make a, a song out of it. I can make, you know, a sculpture out of it. I can, you know, I did maps for it. I did stats for it for games because I like games. So, you know, it all comes back around to all your different loves can all have, you know, life within your creativity. It just depends on how well you're able to adapt that particular um, concept to whatever format you're dealing with. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's the love of creation. If I, if anything, anything out of listening to me babble on here <laughs> is that some people create because they like it. And some people create because they can't stop. If you're a can't stop person, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay? Realize it is that is what it is that you can't stop and utilize that in a positive manner to get whatever you have inside of you out that you want to do, you know? Because you are communicating to people. You are saying, "Here's what I like. Here's what I believe in. Here's my viewpoint." You know, here's what I want you to see in a story. Here's how I want to present it to you. You know, when, it, when it's, it's coming with comics, you know. Understand that and work that to your benefit, you know. And, 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 and get out of it what, what you do need because you do need to do it and you're doing it for you, you know. And if somebody else likes it but that's not your mom, that's great, you know. Because moms don't like everything. That's what mom does. That's her job. That's, she made that contract with the universe when she had you, you know, that I would like that whatever this person does. And what are you doing for you now? What's, what's your... Well, right now, uh, I came upon a game engine that I made up. Um, for me, games need to be easy to play, simplistic rules, but not simplistic gameplay. Um, it needs to be a game that you can play over and over again that plays differently. But you got to be able to grasp it within one or two hands. You need to go, oh, got it, let's play. As opposed to like, you know, there's so many different things going on here that I need a, a token over here and a few uh, items I've got to resource manage over here. and blah. If it gets too complicated, you're not playing a game, you're just trying to work your way through the rules, and when you get done, I've won the game. I played a game like that a few nights ago when I was at a family game night and it was a game it was a resource management game and it was a cooperative game and um, I was so busy playing the game learning how to play the game with its different concepts and all that that all the flavor that the game was about was lost on me I didn't when I got done with that I go oh we won and I thought we won and I thought we won and it made no sense or difference to me whether I won or lost because I wasn't in the world. I wasn't feeling it. The game was too complicated, so it didn't allow me to have time to enjoy the flavor of it. It's like power eating a steak. You know, it went down your throat so fast, you never enjoyed the flavor. So my games, I try to make where there's intuitiveness to it, where you've got uh, colors that will remind you of where you're at. I've got either icons or shapes or whatever it is that's going on in the game, you know, card-wise, because I do more card games than board games. But I try to make it so that when you're playing the game, you get it very quickly and you're able to enjoy the game 
And then when you end up with the game, you go, oh, I felt like I was actually in this world because the rules didn't get between me and the world. So I came up with this one concept of a game, game engine. I thought, okay, and I put all this flavor text on there, and I went and sat down with my son, and I played the game with him. And as I played the game, I was going, oh, I hate this game. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. And then I asked him, I said, so, but I have to, you know, I have to know that, that not only I'm going to play the game. So I said to my son, I said, what did you think of the game? He goes, I love this game. I went, okay. There's got to be something <laughs> about this game that I need to find. I need to find where he's at in this game because obviously I'm not there. And so I was helping somebody move something with a truck because I'm that guy. You call me up. Yeah, let's do it. And I'm driving through traffic. And I'm sitting in traffic lights. And I realized what would make this game work for me is that the genre I was in was the wrong genre. And I changed the genre. And once I did that and I put some artwork to it and I printed out some cards, played the game, it was perfect. So I went and got a bunch of artists to do art for the cards. And that one's going to be coming out fairly soon. Mm -hmm. But that game engine is bigger than that game. So right now what I'm doing is there's a card game that I had that I was going to be putting out as a collectible card game. And although it's a fun game, it's a little complicated and it's set up for what I want it to be. I like games that set up within three minutes. I mean, you can set up and boom, let's go. If it takes me 20 minutes to set up the game, I'm loathe to play the game. I may love the game, but I'm like, oh, i got to put the cards here. and this, this, this. Mm -hmm. So... So, um, and I'm pretty close to getting, getting around to, to printing and publishing this collectible card game when I realized, hey, I've got this game engine that can replace the game engine of that game and it would become the, simpler, simpli the simplified version of what I wanted to achieve with that game. So what I've been doing now is I was creating the look of the cards and and moving stuff over from the original set of cards to the new set of cards and working on it and looking at it and testing it. So for me, the process of creating a card game is intoxicating because the limitations are so stringent. For the most part, you have two sides of a card, eight edges of a card that you can... You know, if you're not adding dice and adding, you know, things to it, that's what you got, right? What can you do with that card that could make a game that could amplify a genre or a concept to where when you're playing the game in a card form that you feel like you're actually doing something within that world? Dude, that is hard. That is so <laughs> hard. When you, get th when you think about you know, writing a, a game book, like a role-playing game book, you've got pages and pages and pages where you can say, well, if you don't do this, you can do this. And maybe you can kind of do that. But if you use this skill, you can do that. And blah, 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 blah. With a card, you've got two sides. And usually the back side, you're not using. Mm -hmm. right? So you've got one side. How can I have it so when you play this card on a character, you feel like you're doing that thing to that character? Or, to the, or you're creating that environment? Or how, 
how does that card in relationship to other cards in play make you feel like what you've done did something? How can that card become chain lightning and it feels like chain lightning? Or you put that card down and it feels like, you know, I've rocked the house with my guitar. How do you do that? It's weird to be able to get to do that, but my past games, um, Battle of the Bands and King of Crime, um, you have that feeling. King of Crime is a, a game where you start your own 1930s mafia family and you're fighting to control the rackets in a city. And then I made expansions for it and the expansions I made for it are in the 30s, and, but they're fun things to it. So one of them was an H.P. Lovecraft expansion to it where now you've got cultists and Hastur and all this are now part of your of to the world that you're trying to do your bootlegging in and all that, you know, because it was written in the 20s and 30s. Um, another one was the Martian one based upon the H.G. Wells adaptation by the Mercury Theater Players, which was done in the 30s, right? So I'm bringing in things that are time period. I've got pulp heroes. I've got FBI cards. I've got famous gangsters, famous um, criminals that can be put into the game. But it all reinforces the feeling of 1930s. So, you know, knowing what I know, I try to show you what I know, show you know that it makes sense and that it's fun, you know, and it's simple, but it's not, it's not unchallenging. It's not, everyone has a good time when they play my game. So back to what I'm working on now, I've got this game engine that works. I'm creating the cards for it. I'm expanding the, what the cards can do, the scope of the game, you know, but it allows it to be something along the lines of a um, collectible card game. And uh, I'm, I'm jazzed about it. I, I sit there and I go run right back to my computer and I'm, I'm working on it and I'm constantly getting, where are you, Dan? Where are you? I'm working, I'm working, let me work. <laughs> you know, so when, when people have to call you away from your work and you don't want to go, you know you're in the zone. You know you're doing what you want to do. You know, you hate to leave it. And, and you, when you leave it, your mind's never away from it. You're always constantly thinking. I mean, I'm, when I was driving up here, I'm still thinking about it. When I drive home, I'll be thinking about it because, because the world of creativity is never stifled by lack of wanting. You know, it's, you're doing what you want to do. And if you can't stop doing it, you're just going to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I, my phone has a, a microphone on there where I can leave messages on my, you know, my, my recorder. It's full of just ideas. I'll sit and I'll say things like, you know, X-17, you know, giant robot uh, plays a guitar. That'll be it. But it'll be enough to get me home. <laughs> <laughs> or I can do something with it, you know. So. And where can people find your stuff? <sighs> well, right now I'm not actively selling any of my stuff. Um, I am partnered with a manufacturer, and we are planning on putting out a game company uh, this year and we're going to have different levels of games we're putting out. It'll be affordable games, uh, mid-level games and uh, prestige level games. Uh, those are called price points. <laughs> <laughs> Cheap, medium and expensive games. Um, right now, if, if you want to see just things I do, I'm on DeviantArt. If you look up the, the word S-M-I-F so my stuff should come up. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for coming down. Well, thank you, Jimmy, for having me. You know, I could say this to my wife, and she's telling me to shut up, but I appreciate <laughs> you. <laughs> Would you like me to tell you to shut up as well? Or? No, no. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Dan. Thank you, Jamie.
That's it for the show. We'll be back in two weeks. You can find us online at whoiampodcast.com and contact us by email at whoiam at gmail.com or by phone at 818-308-4066. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, there is a submissions form on the site. We're also on iTunes where you can leave a rating if you feel inclined. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jamie Gamble, and this was This Is Who I Am.